the responsibility of the preacher. I think the job of the preacher to the people of God is to convey eternal truths from God's word with divine love to move God's people to hope, believe, and act in such a way that you experience the real world effects of grace in your life. That, that's my goal when I preach. It's tapping, on, on one side of it, you're tapping in to the eternal, and then seeking on the other end to manifest that eternal grace to, to make changes in the present. And that being the nature of preaching, um, you, you can't be enslaved to contemporary issues, but you can't ignore them either. And I really have been seeking the Lord uh, where, where he would have us go in God's word. And I believe the Lord has led me to the book of Daniel. And not for the sensational prophecies that we find in the book of Daniel, not for the interesting, future-looking, end-time events that are in the book of Daniel, but because of the man, Daniel. Daniel was a man who experienced social upheaval, physical danger, social pressure, natural disaster, personal temptation, and profound suffering. Daniel lived through conspiracies, hostile takeovers, unreasonable demands, professional betrayals, and conflicting allegiances. And in all of this, he displayed incredible wisdom, foresight, faith, commitment, and courage. He was able to confound his enemies. Other enemies he uh, transformed into advocates. Uh, he was a man with a moral code that was above and external to who he was and to whatever culture he occupied at the time. And in his lifetime, he occupied three very distinct different cultures, at least. I'm reminded of the John Wayne quote, some of you will find it familiar, a man's got to have a code, a creed to live by, no matter his job. And Daniel was the original John Wayne. We have a lot to learn from Daniel. In fact, as we look in the book of Daniel, just about every single chapter that you turn to in the book of Daniel, you learn something new about him, about his character, about his resolve, about his commitment, something that you can implement in your own life. But before we turn to the book of Daniel, let's get our bearing on where, where this book sits chronologically in the progressional history of the Old Testament. So perhaps before you turn to Daniel, you can turn to the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, and then those of you that don't know where Daniel is, that will be a sly way for you to figure out where it is. But if you, I really would like you to turn back to the table of contents where you have all the lists of the books of the Bible. And I just kind of want to help you try to get a, a big picture of the Old Testament here. It starts with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books are the Pentateuch. This is where we see documentation of the creation of the world, the formation of Israel, and the establishment of the law. See, this is a problem. All of you that got the, got your Bible on your phones, no table of contents. I just realized that. 
After the Pentateuch, you have Joshua. And this isn't continuing in historic order, chronological order. Joshua is just the uh, conquest of the promised land. Moses died. Joshua leads the people to mostly possess the promised land, but they don't fully do it. And because they don't fully eliminate all the enemies, then you have the book of Judges, which is uh, the several hundred years where Israel cycles through falling away from God, falling into sin, being judged by God, and then being delivered by one of God's leaders. Uh, it goes, Joshua judges, then Ruth, but if you just put Ruth on hold for a second, you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And that those four books there really provide the backbone of most of the chronology of the Old Testament. And so pretty much from Genesis to 2 Kings, all of that is in chronological order. Uh, Ruth takes place in the beginning, in the beginning quarter of the book of Judges. And then second, first second chronicles is just kind of a repeat with different details on of uh, first and second kings. So up until second chronicles, it's pretty much in chronological order and it makes sense. But then it, it gets a little confusing. And in that in that chronological order, all the all the books of poetry, most of the prophets fit in that timeline somewhere. And so you'll read Jeremiah and Isaiah, and all those fall into that timeline uh, somewhere, and you can place them by names or uh, names of kings or circumstances. But you have Jeremiah, uh, skip over uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and go to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and here you have basically these prophets overlapping each other, but they pick up the continuation of that timeline after Second Chronicles. So Daniel's kind of in the third act of the Old Testament. He's past the midway point, but before the, the real climax of Israel starting to return after they were taken captive. And that return takes place with Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. And so that hopefully gives you somewhat of a view of where we are at. It's after, Daniel takes place after all the historical books have already occurred in the Old Testament. So turn with me to the book of Daniel. And in this first chapter of Daniel, we discover two critical truths about God and one critical character trait about Daniel. Two critical truths about God and his character and one critical character trait about Daniel. And, and it's a great it's foreshadowing of the entire rest of the book of Daniel. We learn so much about God and about Daniel, and it foreshadows what we can come to expect for the rest of the book. Let's start in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessel in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, 
and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portions of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the kings. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Let's stop right there. And I want to draw your attention to the first critical truth about God that we see on display in these first seven verses. And here's the critical truth. The Lord possesses sovereign control even over terrible circumstances. Do you believe that? The Lord possesses sovereign control even over terrible circumstances. Look again at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is a major thing that's happened. The sovereign nation of God, the one, the one nation that was created by God to be bearers of his glory, has fallen in the hand of a pagan country. But it says the Lord gave them into his hand. He was in control. And in verses 3 through 7, we, we see kind of the bleed out, the intimate, personal consequences of what happens to individuals when God delivers one nation into the hand of another. It's easy to see that one verse and say, oh, God gave the kingdom into their hand. But there's a lot of real gritty details in there, a lot of suffering, a lot of hurt that is experienced. And Daniel is our representative. And in Daniel, we see a lot of different suffering. Notice, first of all, at the end of verse 2, before any suffering from Daniel is expressed, God first suffers his own humiliation in which the vessels of the house of God are brought to a foreign land. So these vessels that are used for worship, outsiders would look at that and say, clearly the Babylonian gods are more powerful than this God, Yahweh. But this was according to God's plan. Notice at the beginning of verse uh, 3, it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people... Of Israel. And so in that those four little words, some of the people, we see Daniel experiencing a loss of his country, a loss of community. We see Daniel experiencing a loss of his family. Daniel is one of these that's pulled out of the only environment he's ever known. Have you experienced loss? Daniel has. Notice also at the end of verse uh, 3, it says... Uh, I'm sorry, at the beginning it says, the king commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch. So D Daniel is under the authority of this eunuch. He's in the palace. And later on that eunuch comes up again. And though it doesn't say directly in, in scriptures, it's safe, I believe, to assume that Daniel himself was made into a eunuch. So what did he lose there? He lost his sexuality. He lost the potential future of his own family. 
I, I think we can look at a couple other areas in Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 18, it's prophesied that the young men would be pulled out of Israel and made into eunuchs. It said, some of your sons will be taken away and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And in this chapter, we see that prophecy fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 3, on the other end of it, it's prophesying the return. And it would normally be a shameful thing to not be able to procreate, especially in this culture. But Isaiah 56.3 says, Let no eunuch say that I am a dry tree. So you still be accepted back into Israel, even though you've been humiliated in this way. So, Daniel's lost his country, his community, his family, his sexuality, his future. Look at the end of verse 4. He's saying, who are we looking for? We're looking for youths without blemish. So, that's 4-1 for all the ugly people. No ugly people were taken. Just the good-looking ones. How many people here would be safe, I wonder? We'll leave that for you to decide. But he was taken away, and look what they did. It says, they had to be skillful in learning and wisdom and have knowledge and understanding and competency in the king's palace because they were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans. So he lost his language, he lost his culture. Uh, it was to be replaced with a pagan culture, literature, and teachings. This is quite a bit of loss. I don't think we can really fathom everything that Daniel was stripped of. He was essentially pulled out of Israel and put on another planet against his will. But that wasn't all. One last thing was stripped from them, and we see this in verse 6 and 7. Their names. They changed their names. This was an attempt to strip them of their spiritual identity and heritage. Look at those names. In... Uh, in verse 6. So you see Daniel, and then you skip one, you see Mishael. So at the end of those two names, you see the letters E and L. That was the, the Hebrew prefix to Elohim, the name of God. These had the, these people had the name of God in their name. Of course, if you have notes in your Bible, you might be able to see it for yourself. But Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Elohim is my judge. Mishael's name means who is like Elohim. And they changed their name to be Bell protects his life. And who was like Aku. Two uh, uh, Babylonian gods replaced him. So Mishael's name is who is like God. Like, no, no, no. Your name is who is like Aku. And then you look at Hananiah's name and Azariah's name. Again, look at the last three letters of those names. That's the Hebrew prefix for Yahweh. They have the name of Yahweh in their name. Hananiah's name means the Lord shows grace. Azariah means Yahweh helps. All these are hopeful names, testimonies to who God is. And they changed them, servant of Nego, under Haku's command. And this was an all-out assault on their faith. Every time they were addressed by their new names, the aim was to remind them, your God failed you. Your God is less than our God. Our God conquered your gods. Every time they had their names spoken. And yet, God was in control. It's hard to feel like God is in control when you can when you experience some of these losses. And every person under this roof has experienced some of these losses and others. But God is in control. 
Now, what we will discover, not in this sermon, but later on in the series, what we will discover is that this was not God being some kind of cruel, cosmic chess player. This was actually the culmination of generation, generational rebellion of God's people against His love. He loved His people, He gave Himself to His people, He led His people, He loved them, and they rebelled against it again and again and again, generation after generation. So many prophets came and warned them, this is gonna, what's going to happen if you rebel against me, and they continued to rebel, and finally God delivered them into the hands of the Babylonians. And so really, sin is to blame here, but, but not at the forfeiture of God's own sovereignty. So that's the first critical truth that we observe in the book of Daniel. That the Lord possesses sovereign control even over terrible circumstances. And now, to look at one of Daniel's critical character traits, look in verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. That word, but. This is going to sound kind of funny, but it's one of the biggest buts in all the Bible, right there. But, Daniel resolved. The word but is a conjunction. It, a conjunction connects two sets of ideas in a sentence or in a paragraph. And if those two sets of ideas are conflicting with each other, we use the word but. And there is some major conflict here. Everything that Daniel experienced is stripped away all by himself. Who could possibly blame him if he abandoned his own faith? You can even argue he didn't abandon it. It was ripped from him. He had no choice in the matter. But, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. So the character, critical character trait that we see in Daniel here is Daniel resolved to remain devoted to God regardless of the circumstances. Daniel resolved to remain devoted to God regardless of the circumstances. Despite all the loss, despite all the tragedy, despite all the permanent harm that could never be rectified on this planet, Daniel remained resolved. Some of your translations uh, may say Daniel made up his mind. Really, more accurately would be Daniel made up his heart. He determined, no matter what they do, they're not going to strip this from me. He said, you can strip away every exterior indicator of who I am. You can pluck me from all that is familiar to me. You can plunge me into the depths of paganism and tempt me with power and prestige. But I will not change who I am for you. You can re-educate me, but you cannot indoctrinate me. I remain devoted to Yahweh. My name is Daniel. Do you have that kind of resolve? What does it take for you to, to miss on your conditions? Had a rough week, did you? Really tired this morning, huh? Just look what Daniel went through, and all it did was steal him. He would not give Satan this victory. He was resolved to remain devoted to God. And what we're going to do is, we're going to, throughout this book, we're going to look at the commitments, the convictions... The, the continued habits that he built into his life. We're going to see his views and how he remained this devoted to God. But just know this of him right now. 
We're going to get back to that second characteristic of God, second truth about God. But just what you need to know about Daniel is that he was a man of resolve and devotion. But now, let's look at the second critical truth about God that we see in this passage. Um, first critical truth was that the Lord possesses sovereign control even over terrible circumstances. The second critical truth that we're going to observe here in the last half of the chapter is that the Lord blesses those who are devoted to Him. Good thing Daniel was committed to devotion. The Lord blesses those who are devoted to Him. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor. There's the first hint right there. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Very first step there, God's already starting to grant him favor. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, and this is really interesting, we see here a contrast of fear. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said, well, you fear your king, I fear my king. And my king has some rules about food as well. I'm not going to break it just because you put it on a plate in front of me. What does it take to get you to break your convictions? What does it take to get you to break your standards, God's standards in your life? Just opportunity? For so many people, that's all that is required. All Satan has to do is give you the opportunity and you take it. Like, like an animal, like a mindless animal, following your instincts. Not an animal. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, and all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So he took away their bacon, he took away their wine, and for the next three years they had water and vegetables. Thanks a lot, Daniel, what they're thinking. But Daniel's a man of faith. Look what it says. Verse 17. As for the youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So we see, first of all, God gave them favor in the eunuch side, just, just so the eunuch would treat them favorably and grant their request. And now we see God taking even further, and he's advancing them through all their training. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. All the captive cohorts, everyone that was in the same exact 
training program as Daniel, going through the exact same procedures, the exact same training, the exact same diet, but something set Daniel and his three friends apart, their devotion to the Lord. And God saw that, and he blessed them above all of their peers. What's more than that, look at verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So not only did they outpace their peers, but all the established elder magicians and wise men, they were ten times better than all of them. This is an indication that the Lord blesses those who are devoted to Him. The Lord blesses those who are devoted to Him. Now, I want you to... I hope to shape your thinking of what that looks like in your life, just a little bit. Okay, don't think of your obedience as chips on the table. Okay, you don't negotiate blessing out of God's hand via your conduct. That's not how it works. Rather, you are positioning yourself under the natural outpouring of His favor when you conduct yourself in accord with His righteousness and His grace. Do, do you see the difference there? It's like God's um, God's blessing is like watering your lawn in reverse. He's got the sprinkler set. The water is going to go where God determines the water is going to go. And you can choose to plant your grass wherever you want. But if you plant it where the water flows, where his spiritual hydration goes, then you will be blessed. If you choose to plant your grass somewhere else, you will be avoiding, you will be rebelling against the path that God blesses. You see the difference? We're not negotiating this out of God. We're submitting ourselves. Uh, Doug, where's Doug at? Doug. Oh, the other Doug, the farmer Doug. <laughs> there, Doug, what's in your fields right now? Corn soybeans, okay. So you can go out to Doug's farm field and see the corn. And I can plant corn, like on the cracks in my sidewalk in front of my house. You know, I grew up in Kansas. And you see corn growing between the cracks in the sidewalk sometimes. And I can complain. I can say, God is choosing to bless Doug over me. But Doug has chosen to plant his corn where it's going to grow. I've chosen not to. And likewise, you can determine how you live your life. And you can live your life in such a way that does not invite God's blessing, or you can put yourself under the natural outpouring of God's grace. Let me say this another way. There is no righteousness that is humanly expressed apart from God. Okay? In your life, in your conduct, in your thinking, in your devotion... There is no righteousness humanly expressed apart from God. So when you behave obediently, you are an active conduit of God's essence. God is conducting His essence through you when you obey. And where God's essence is expressed, His blessings abide. And so in this first chapter, we see a setup of the rest of what we're going to see in Daniel. That God is in control always, even when it doesn't appear to be so. And even when we experience much personal suffering, God is in control. And also, God pours His blessings out on those who remain devoted to Him. And then this, these thoughts are connected when we see Daniel 
still in the midst of all of this being resolved to be devoted to God. Men, are you ready to be that kind of man? Women, are you ready to express that kind of resolve? Young person, are you ready to possess all of that kind of maturity? God, God has placed us in this time and in these circumstances. He has equipped you with all the history that each one of you possess. And right now, He is equipping you with these truths. What are you going to do with them? Good times or bad? Prosperity or suffering? Blessing or drive? We must believe. We must resolve ourselves to devotion, to trust God, follow Him, and receive His blessing. Let's stand, and as our worship team comes forward, we'll pray. Great Father, it is so easy for us to look around and point our finger at all the suffering that we see around us. To wrap our minds around all the injustice that others experience and sometimes we experience. And also, Lord, it's just as easy for us as fallible human beings to excuse our sin in that process. But we can't. We humble ourselves, Lord. We recognize that all of what we see in this world are the fruit of sinful humanity. But we long for you. We set our eyes upon you. We seek to follow you. I pray, Father, that you would make us, every person here, man, woman, and child, to be people like after Daniel's own heart. People that are resolved to be devoted to you. Give us the faith to do it, I pray. In Jesus' name.